Vox Quick Hits. I'm Eliza Barkley, Vox's science, health, and climate editor. This April, our podcasts are teaming up to cover some of the most important issues threatening life on Earth. From sustainability to biodiversity to straight-up cool things about the natural world, we'll focus on our planet and its limits in episodes throughout the month. Tune in to Today Explained, Box Conversations, The Weeds, Unexplainable, Worldly, Future Perfect, and Vox Quick Hits. Want to listen to all the shows? Find them at vox.com slash earthmonth. Hi, this is Benji Jones, reporter for Vox's new initiative, Down to Earth, where I write about the science and politics of the biodiversity crisis. And this week, I'm your host for Vox Conversations. As you may have figured out from reading some depressing headlines over the last few years, we're in something of an extinction crisis. We're losing animals and their genetic lineages like never before. One stat that's particularly devastating is that an estimated 1 million species are threatened with extinction. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But as it turns out, things could be worse. In fact, they probably would be worse if not for a global movement to conserve nature, or simply the conservation movement. In a new book called Beloved Beasts, journalist and author Michelle Nyhouse provides an honest look at the history of that movement and its many characters. For those of you who don't know her, Michelle is currently a project editor at The Atlantic and a longtime contributing editor at High Country News. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Benji. So writing a book is, of course, a huge undertaking. And so my first question is just, what inspired you to write this book and why now? Well, this book was a huge undertaking because it was an enormous challenge to try to capture the long and very diffuse history of the conservation movement in a reasonably sized book. Uh, I was inspired to write it because I've reported on environmental and conservation issues for a long time, and I've always been interested in conservation history, partly because I see that conservationists don't know that much about their own history. I think people who are in the conservation movement, who are interested in conservation, know some iconic names. They've heard of Rachel Carson. They might know Aldo Leopold, the author of A Sand County Almanac, or John Muir, the founder of the Sierra Club. But they don't have a sense of their own movement as a tradition that's had successes and failures and has learned things over time. And so the more I reported on conservation issues, the more I began to think it might be useful to try to capture the story of conservation in an accessible form that both people who are familiar with the conservation movement and aren't could learn something from. I mean, I certainly learned a lot. There were many characters that I knew and and many more that I didn't. And I just wanted to kind of ask what may sound like a basic question, but just what is conservation? Because I think for many, what comes to mind is protecting charismatic pandas or tigers. But I, I'm wondering if that kind of definition that is protecting those species has changed. How would you define conservation? And maybe how has that changed since the beginning of this movement? It's a really good question because, as you say, the definition has changed and also the perception of what conservation is is very different depending on who you ask. So conservation in its most basic sense is just the prevention of waste or loss of, of anything. <laughs> and people have practiced conservation of the species that they depend on for food or shelter 
since the beginning of human history, of course, people have conserved their local species and their local habitats just out of their own desire for survival and, and often for spiritual or moral reasons as well. The modern conservation movement came about in the late 1800s after people realized, somewhat belatedly realized, that their own activities could not only reduce the number of animals they lived beside, but could drive entire species to extinction, you know, could drive them into oblivion forever, sometimes species that they didn't even live next to. And that realization birthed a global movement to protect all species, whether they were useful to humans or not, for the long term. And and so that's what conservation meant at the beginning. I think as the conservation movement has been informed by the science of ecology, it's come to mean not only protecting individual species, but protecting the relationships among them, protecting the relationships between species and their habitats, protecting the relationship between humans and other species. But I think it's still perceived by many members of the public and even by conservationists themselves as a movement to save individual charismatic species. That's the way it began, and that's often how it's most famous successes are framed. We saved the bald eagle or we saved a species of rhino from extinction. And, you know, those are true and those are terrific victories. But I think that perception is a bit misleading in that it doesn't include what the real work of conservation is, which is to preserve species in abundance and in relationship with other species. And in the earliest days, what were the warning signs that some of the famous conservationists picked up on? What kinds of animals were were being driven to extinction that kind of prompted this outcry for protection? Well, the first species that people heard about were birds on isolated islands that had been driven extinct when Europeans showed up and perhaps either deliberately or unconsciously introduced a whole lot of invasive species that these birds had never encountered before and had not evolved to fend off. So, you know, you have a ship landing on an isolated island and all these ground nesting birds have lived there happily for millennia. And all of a sudden, a bunch of dogs and rats and also hungry people show up. So those kinds of species were just not equipped to deal with a sudden change in, in their environment and in the threats that they faced. So people began hearing about those extinctions in the 1800s, but it wasn't until the end of the 1800s, really, that people began to grasp that even physically large, very abundant species could be driven entirely extinct. And one of the first species that people realized was about to blink out was the American bison, the plains bison in North America, which had been subject to decades of commercial slaughter to supply people on the East Coast of North America and Europeans with fur and with other products. And the numbers of bison were dwindling. And of course, the Native Americans who lived alongside the bison realized this very quickly, but it took quite a while for people on the East Coast to grasp the idea that this species might soon be gone forever. And with the bison specifically, was the push to save that animal driven by a desire for hunting them or the early motivations? Was it it mostly so that you have literally just game species as a hunter? 
Well, as I write about in the book, conservation history is full of people who did the right thing for the wrong reasons. <laughs> and right. the bison is a great example of that because the people who did have the foresight and the generosity of spirit really to work to save the bison from extinction were also people who wanted to save it for reasons that we would now consider pretty short-sighted or pretty narrow-minded. They saw it as a symbol of national pride. They saw it, as you say, a species that they wanted to hunt. And they also believed, many of them believed, like many people of the time, that white masculinity was somehow under threat by the rise of industrial society and that, you know, men were just generally spending too much time in offices and were kind of wilting away and <laughs> and needed the backbone stiffening activity of hunting a large animal on the frontier in order to restore themselves. And so the bison was protected, in particular by a man named William Hornaday, who I write about. They were protected for reasons that have very little to do with the bison itself, and in particular, very little to do with the people who were most dependent on the bison which were the Native Americans who had depended on the bison for millennia, and then within a couple of decades saw their societies devastated by the decline in bison numbers. And they really lost not only their source of protein and warmth, but in a sense, they lost much of their cultural strength and cohesion because of the loss of the species that had been so important to society. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we could improve. And if you have ideas for future guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And hey, if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.